listening to the Jay's Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Shapiro, and on this episode, we've got Ben Nicholson-Smith from Rogers Sportsnet sitting down with me to chat Blue Jays for about half an hour, back and forth, fantastic Q&A regarding the state of the team and the direction that they're headed in this offseason as we inch closer and closer to spring training, with bated breath, I might add. And then, another installment from the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network. That's right, Richard Burfer and Dan Sagan drop by to talk about the number one Blue Jays catching prospect and the number eight catching prospect, I might add, in the minors, Danny Jansen. So stick around for those two back-to-back exclusives. And in the meantime, looking at the Jays Journal itself and some great articles that we have trending, which you can find us at www.jaysjournal.com. First, we've got Brendan Panikar with a couple of great articles looking at the fact that the Blue Jays should seriously be considering Domingo Santana as yet another outfielder in the equation who's available largely as a result of all the hoopla surrounding players like Christian Yelich and Lorenzo Cain. Brennan makes the point that Shapiro and Atkins have been extremely effective in finding these kinds of under-the-radar deals, and certainly Domingo Santana would represent a huge upgrade for them as a power bat in the outfield, which right now, as it stands, folks, just isn't powerful enough for what you would consider an American League East contender, or even a wildcard contender for that. Brennan also uh, contributes his uh, look at the number 19 prospect, Tim Meza, whom, of course, as listeners to the show are very familiar with, is a prospect that's got a lot of excitement surrounding him, including uh, one of his biggest fans, Jesse Goldberg-Strasler, who's been watching him play down on the farm. This is a, this is a player that, that Brendan writes is someone we should be paying attention to, who has an opportunity with his size and with his ability as a left-hander to really make some, some waves in the 2018 season. Site expert Clayton Riche then proceeds to take a, a closer look with his article entitled Blue Jays Willing to Move Bo Bichette if Kendris Morales is included. Yes, that's right. He, according to Jeff Blair of Sportsnet, the Toronto Blue Jays would consider moving the number eight prospect in baseball if Kendris Morales is included in the package going the other way. And that's a really fascinating look on the part of Clay to look deeper to what motivates uh, Shapiro and Atkins and this front office to make the kinds of moves Um, that other fans would take for granted, and how to be creative and think outside the box when clearly you cannot outspend the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox. Another article you should consider looking at is a fantastic look at whether or not the Blue Jays will be able to get the best bang for their buck with their payroll, and veteran writer and contributor to the Jays Journal, Jim Scott, takes a closer look at how the Jays could best spend the remaining $15 million that's reported to be in their budget. And he argues the answer might not be what you think. And then finally, we've got another article that's trending from Mark Cauley, uh, one of our recent uh, additions to the Jays Journal, who writes, thanks, Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins, no seriously, in an article that argues, although some question Major League moves have given fans pause when considering the talent of the Toronto Blue Jays' new leadership, this year's prospect rankings serve as proof of Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins' ability. That's a fantastic look by Mark at, into the, to the, again, the mentality of what this front office is all about when it comes to weighing its talent and determining how to make moves to upgrade their team to a contending status. So, without further delay, let's go ahead and start chatting with Ben Nicholson-Smith, and I want to thank you again for taking the time to read all of our great work here at the Jays Journal Podcast. My first guest on today's show is national baseball editor for Sportsnet and someone who's been on this show many times now. He's becoming a true mainstay. He also has a phenomenal podcast called At the Letters with Arden Zwelling. The two of them do a phenomenal job 
Ben Nicholson-Smith is on the Jays Journal Podcast. Ben, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure, Ari. Always good to talk baseball, and, and even in the coldest months when it seems pretty remote, it, it always seems like there's something going on, something for us to something for us to chew over. Are you kidding me? I, I was just thinking to myself this morning, what, what is better than January baseball discussion with Ben Nicholson-Smith? So, so here we find ourselves, like you said, in the offseason, and that's what I want to speak with you about. That's what my listening audience is really curious about, because here we are with the Blue Jays having made some of the most... Um, how shall we put it delicately, uneventful moves during a stretch of fan frustration and paranoia. You would have thought that the answer would have been to satiate them with a big move, but could we argue that some of these smaller off-the-radar moves, like getting Solarte and Diaz and uh, Granderson and Albuquerque, reveals that the Blue Jays are in fact serious about trying to contend in 2018? You certainly could make that argument. Um, I I think that it ultimately would be unconvincing to me. Um, now, they're not going all in by any stretch. They're not trying to bring in the absolute splashy free agents that they can find. I do think they want to win. Uh, I think the more interesting question that, that follows from that is, have they done enough to get to the point that they can actually achieve their, their goal? And as I look at this team right now, I do see some improvements. Certainly, Granderson helps them. Solarte is someone who can, who can play a lot of different roles and really raise the floor for this team a little bit. At the same time, they have a lot of questions in their pitching staff. And even offensively, have they done enough to upgrade the group that scored the fewest runs in the American League last year? So to me, this is a team that definitely wants to win, yet they just haven't done quite enough to get to that point that we can point to them as, a, as one of the likely playoff teams. I mean, at this point, they're a fringe wildcard contender. And I think they want to be better than that. So that means they have work to do ahead of opening day. I think you put it marvelously, a quote fringe wildcard contender. And that's not something that you want to really be known as in this day and age. Why? Because it usually indicates that you're half in and you're half out and you're trying to sell your fan base, that you're good enough to keep them glued to the seats, but not necessarily good enough to stave off what will be a very challenging year. And you bring up the pitching and you know, I've been on the radio, been on, on Sportsnet, the Fan 590, and on in Vancouver 650, talking about the hitting, talking about depth in the infield. One area that hasn't been talked a lot about during this offseason is shoring up the pitching. Do you think fans should be anticipating the Blue Jays will do something impactful on that front, given that all they've done to this point are make smaller depth-related moves? Yeah, I think we should. And the reason I say that is because at the beginning of the offseason, uh, when we were asking Ross Atkins about his priorities for the winter and what he hoped to accomplish, he said that he wanted to add an impact bat and an impact arm. And so there are a lot of different ways that you could define impact. Um, some people might not define Curtis Granderson and Young Gerber Solarte as impact bats. <laughs> That's probably a question for another day, really. Um, I think by the definition that the Blue Jays set out, those guys would be considered impact offensive players. But on the pitching side, they haven't made an addition that's close to that level. As you mentioned, they've added some smaller guys like an Al Albuquerque, but realistically, there's no one who's been added to this pitching staff who is anything close to a guarantee of appearing on this team on opening day. So that, to me, says that they still have a need. Uh, you, can, you can look at the bullpen. You can look at the rotation. Either one of those areas would benefit from adding uh, a pitcher who's capable of, of helping the Blue Jays over the course of six months. And so I do expect that they will make a move. And I think if they don't make a move, then this roster looks incomplete entering the 18th season. Speaking with Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet, 
So, Ben, if we look at some of the still available, notable free agents out there, are you surprised that there's still names like J.D. Martinez and Jake Arrieta and Hugh Darvish available? And are there any names on the available list of higher-tier free agents that you could see the Blue Jays making a real dedicated effort to try and lend? I am incredibly surprised at the volume of top-caliber free agents that's still out there. And maybe this is a, a new norm for Major League Baseball, um, if teams really do become very value-oriented and, and patient, um, deliberate, systematic in the way that they make moves, they are not going to rush out and just try to get something done for the sake of completing a deal or appeasing a fan base. And that's something that I didn't expect at all. Maybe I should have. I certainly will have different expectations entering next offseason. But this slow market is definitely coming as a surprise to me. And as for the Blue Jays and whether they could jump in on some of those bigger names, I, I think that... Lorenzo Cain would have been a great fit for this team. However, at this point, now that they've added Curtis Granderson, that fit looks a little less likely to me. I still think that names like Alex Cobb and Lance Lynn are worth keeping an eye on because depending on where their price ends up, this is the kind of pitcher that would help the Blue Jays. There's no question in my mind that they look better if they have a guy like Alex Cobb in that rotation. All of a sudden, that leaves Joe Biagini free to either start the season in the AAA rotation or pitch out of the bullpen, or they might need him anyway because there are a lot of unknowns surrounding Aaron Sanchez, and there's always the possibility that another pitcher like Stroman or Estrada or Happ ends up tweaking a, a shoulder or pulling a hamstring, and at that point, you've got to cover yourself off. And I'm wondering, what's your school of thought when it comes to players that are uncertain, not just because they're coming off of a year riddled with injuries, but are being treated as reclamation projects, which you could argue Aledmus Diaz and Jan Hervis Solarte essentially are. They're players who two years ago, you and I would have said, wow, look at that higher impact war player. And now we're looking at them as players just trying to get their major league careers back on track. Do you put stock into the fact that by loading the roster with a lot of players that have something to prove that that could end up being a blessing in disguise for the Blue Jays in 2018? Well, you, when you put it that way, it's hard to, hard to refute that possibility, that's for sure. You know, I think that even if Solarte were to go out and replicate what he did in 2017, that wouldn't be the worst thing for the Jays. Um, not to say that he had a great year, but tough, tough environment to hit in, and he ended up producing, I think it was 1.3 wins above replacement, according to baseball reference. So I think they are hoping for more, but if he were to produce that kind of season, it wouldn't be the end of the world for this team. So Diaz, though, looking for a big bounce back, even Granderson, the way he finished in 2017, being left off the World Series roster, really struggling after he got to Los Angeles. You could even call him a bounce-back candidate to an extent. Mm, so sure. I, I think, you know, w with these guys, there is a discount that's priced into acquiring them because of the fact that they had rough seasons, or at least in Granderson's case, a rough finish to the season. So these players, if they had had the kind of years that they had in 16 would have been far more expensive to acquire and that would have maybe prevented the Blue Jays from doing something else. So to this point, it's tricky, right? Because we look at these deals, we see, okay, they save in this respect. They're not overspending here. We're seeing a lot of reserve, a lot of restraint from the Blue Jays. At a certain point, you've got to put those savings toward the product on the field. That's the point. The point isn't to save money for ownership. The point is to save money and use it in a very strategic way so that your team on the field between the lines can be better. And that's the purpose that 
that saving money ultimately accomplishes. And it remains to be seen whether the Jays can actually take advantage of some of these savings and put together the finishing touches on a roster that looks decent, but again, not an overwhelming favorite to contend next year. Do you think they missed a window of opportunity in seizing the early fire sale nature of what Derek Jeter was trying to do and lower payroll? Was there an opportunity lost in going after the initial bevy of players that became available for them to to continue developing whatever rebuild they plan to ultimately accomplish? My assumption is that the Blue Jays and Marlins have talked. I mean, I think that we, we can safely assume that they've checked in with the Marlins on, on Yelich and, and um, Stanton before that, potentially. Marcelo Zuna before that, even JT Real Mudo. I mean, they're, they're very thorough. I'm imagining that they've checked. So I, I don't know if I'd say it's a missed opportunity. I'd say it's more likely a, a price that they just didn't want to pay. And I, I get it. You can make the case that you can make a very strong case, in fact, that the Blue Jays should give up Bobichet for Christian Yelich. It, it really, when you look at a guy who has five years of control in Christian Yelich, I, I could see a, a very convincing argument for taking the established mm. player over the uncertainty of a prospect. I think that's a possibility that the Blue Jays have weighed and most likely come to the conclusion that they don't want to make that move. And and does that have somewhat uh, does that have something to do with the fact that there are just so many questions in the outfield overall as to whether or not an Alfred or Hernandez can take the next step and whether the organization, quite frankly, Ben has faith in Kevin Pillar. Yeah, and that's another possibility too, is they could end up having to discuss players off the big league roster. Um, at, at this moment in time, I think Pilar stays in center um, and, and you move, you know, whether it's Lorenzo Cain, when he seemed like more of a possibility here, he most likely would have been bumped to a corner outfield spot um, with Yelich. He had some experience playing the corners as well. So that's a, a possibility that they, they could have pursued. Um, so it's, it's tricky, you know, when you're piecing all these, these pieces together. And, and I think you're absolutely right to identify the outfield depth that they have in the form of Alford and Hernandez. And to be fair, I'm not saying that all these guys are great players or that they even will be ever, because we don't know. I mean, they, they might be really good. Uh, Alford might bust, or, or Hernandez might have been a flash in the pan. He strikes out 33% of the time, and, and his home runs that he hit in September aren't sustainable. We don't know this yet, but I think at least there is a depth, a depth of possibility, um, a depth of options for the Blue Jays that they're trying to set up their roster for next season. And with the Granderson acquisition, you now have another option against right-handed pitching. So, I mean, you could see, and believe me, if they add another big league outfielder who's a capable player, that's a good thing for this team. But you could also imagine that they would decide to focus their money toward pitching, toward relief pitching, maybe even backup catcher, knowing now that they have bolstered their outfield above where it was at the end of last season. And let's turn our attention to the pitching again and and look at it through a philosophical perspective on arbitration, which, as you know, the team is going through or or completed most of their negotiations, picked up some great deals for all intents and purposes, because it is a good deal when you can settle for a three, four, five million dollar contract with a player that you know will give you value. But it's also a necessary mechanism to make sure that you don't spend money and then get a negative war season if, if things don't pan out. If we look at the pitching on this team, if we look at the starters between Stroman, Sanchez, Happ, and Estrada, and then you look at the bullpen, which I think they're spending about $9 million cumul- cumulatively on, 
are the Blue Jays the best value of pitching in the American League? Is there a team that gets more value out of the amount of money that they invest in these players, considering what they've done and can do for them? That's a that's a great question. I, I think you could probably start that discussion with Cleveland, just given the the very affordable deal signed by some of their young starting pitching uh, pitchers, including Corey Kluber, of course. Um, you could also look at the Rays, who historically have gotten some really strong performances from players making almost no money. And, and Chris Archer, of course, the, one of the best bargains in baseball. I think he still has four or five more years on that contract. And I, I think his ERA is, is a very likely candidate to drop well below four after a couple of a couple of up-and-down seasons. So those are a couple teams that come to mind. The Jays on that list, too. But, you know, and, and I know I'm not telling you anything new here in saying this, but, of course, the goal is to come up with the best pitching staff, not the best bargain relative to the right, pitching staff. Right. And that's where and that's where the Jays have that challenge. But that, that, that concerns me enormously, though, Ben, because I think that, and again, this depends on your perspective of what arbitration represents in baseball. For me, it can be psychologically damaging to have too many players or certain players constantly going to arbitration after having monster years. Case in point, Marcus Stroman. He had a six-war last year, which you and I can both agree ravenously is sensational. If you've got pitchers giving you six wins above replacement, you're on your way, and then some. And, of course, they're now contesting or did contest a $500,000 difference in trying to find an arbitration settlement. That's now the second year in a row that Marcus Stroman has gone into arbitration for about half a million dollars worth of of contested compensation. Now, I ran a poll on my Twitter feed, Ben, where I asked fans and followers whom they would sign first between Roberto Asuna, Aaron Sanchez, uh, Devin Travis, and Marcus Stroman. And over 60% over se- of 700 votes, over 60% voted for Marcus Stroman. Clearly, the fans love him. Clearly, the, the business of baseball is suited for him. Why haven't the Blue Jays signed him up long-term? I think that the Blue Jays should sign him up long-term. So I'm very much with the people who voted in that uh, in that mm-hmm. poll. Um, I I think Marcus Stroman has shown that he is durable and that he can get out pitching at the highest level in a very tough division in a tough ballpark. So I'm sold. I think Marcus Stroman is a really good major league starting pitcher. He's young, and if you can lock him up, I think you absolutely have to do it. Now, to make that happen the Blue Jays would need Marcus Stroman to want to sign. And mm-hmm. I think, understandably, and I haven't spoken to Stroman about this, so I'm not speaking on his behalf here, but it would certainly be understandable if a young pitcher who's now three seasons away from free agency, um, someone who, who knows his own value, someone who's you know, very savvy about the game and his place in the game, and someone who by the end of this season will already have $10 million in the bank, I think it would be very understandable if that person decided that they weren't all that interested in signing a team-friendly, hometown-type deal, and if instead they would rather wait a few years, get to free agency, and see what the market says about their value at that point in time. And and it shouldn't surprise either of us that someone who's so very effective at marketing himself and believing in his own brand would want to continue on a year-to-year basis and, of course, with every arbitration settlement and increase, let's look at Josh Donaldson. He got $23 million, which is a staggering amount of money and a reflection of how the team needs to buy time to figure out what to do with the player. 
But knowing Ben that the $23 million was actually more than what he was projected to get in arbitration settlement, does that change your perception as to whether or not the Blue Jays will end up signing Josh Donaldson? Or is this truly a year where he will do his best to demonstrate to the rest of the league that come free agency 2019, he's going to command one of the top four or five salaries in baseball? Yeah, and if he plays the way he has for the past few years, he's going to set himself up very, very nicely, even at a time that you have Manny Machado, Bryce Harper, Clayton Kershaw, Andrew McCutcheon. I mean, we, we all know how stacked next year's free agent oh, class boy. is. There's, there's no doubt about that. But Donaldson is a big reason that that class looks as strong as it does. He, he's really a, a player um, who, who is consistently showing that he is one of the best in baseball. And so whether it's in Toronto or, or somewhere else, I think he's going to set himself up very nicely for four years, you know, potentially five years, um, after next season but this is really crunch time for the Blue Jays when it comes to Donaldson this next little stretch because I think once opening day starts it's so much harder to to have a serious contract discussion with the player and in a lot of cases when they're that close to free agency they're not necessarily all that interested in giving up the chance to hear from other teams about how they're valued so I, I think that the next few weeks are, are the most logical time for the Blue Jays to talk to Josh Donaldson and see if there is any common ground. And once they determine that, then they can either extend him if there is some common ground to be found, or they can move on, understanding that in all likelihood, he'll end up playing elsewhere this time next year. That's an excellent point, because we both know it has to be all about dancing partners. It takes two to tango in this negotiation process, doesn't it? Josh Donaldson has to want to stay in Toronto as badly as the Blue Jays want him. And when there's that disconnect, as we saw last year during this time with Edwin Encarnacion, regardless of whether or not you believe the Blue Jays weren't really interested in bringing him back or whether the player was too filled with pride to come back at what was initially offered, I don't think we'll see that repeated with Josh Donaldson. I think, would you agree that we'll know sooner than later whether or not this player will be here for the long run or whether we might be enjoying the last year of of what has been the best game-breaking Blue Jay in a very long time? Yeah, yeah, and that that last part definitely applies. He is something else, a a tremendous, tremendous player and one who would be extremely tough to replace. I I think we'll know, I, I think we'll have a very good guess by, let's say, the middle of March, whether... Josh Donaldson is a likely candidate to stay in Toronto long-term. Knowing the Blue Jays' front office, they are not inclined to close off possibilities. They don't like limiting themselves. And so if there isn't a deal, I don't think they're going to come out and say, we are done, we are absolutely and unequivocally done negotiating with Donaldson. And of course, if you're Donaldson, it helps you not at all to rule out the Blue Jays because at that point you've crossed one of the potential 30 suitors off of your list and potentially right. reduce your leverage. So I, I think neither side is going to say we're absolutely done, but I think if there's not a deal by the end of spring training, I mean, I, I just don't see something getting done in the regular season. Agreed. Agreed. If there's one thing this regime has shown very early on, it's that they will uh, reserve their decisions until what they think is the ideal time, not necessarily what the player thinks. I'm talking to Ben Nicholson-Smith, the baseball editor at Sportsnet. So I would like to get your take, Ben, knowing that there's so many question marks. And, and I think you'll agree that we'd be hard-pressed to find a, a year of Blue Jays baseball where there were so many different question marks, specifically at 
second base and shortstop with the health of Tulowitzki and Travis? What's going to happen in right field and whether or not one of the young kids will stick or whether or not a platoon with Pierce and Granderson might be the best thing to look forward to? On the pitching side, will Sanchez come back, recover nicely and give them quality innings? And will Estrada and Hap go back to the form that many fans were used to, let alone if Marcus can keep doing what Marcus does? If you had to give me your perspective on which Blue Jays player will surprise the most or one that might disappoint, who would you choose? Yeah, I think a name to watch is Ryan Barucki. And maybe it's just because I'm, I'm about to head down to this, this prospect <laughs> uh, mini camp at Rogers Center. So I have prospects on the mind probably a little more than I normally would. But you look mm-hmm. at his numbers and what he did, mostly at high A, but also moving up to double A and briefly to triple A, he, he really pitched well. And as a left-handed starting pitcher, someone who's very well regarded within the organization and someone who's put up numbers, put up results, I, I think he's someone worth watching because this club will, and it, it's very, very likely that at some point they're going to need to reach to triple A and pull a, a starting pitcher up from the minors to, to help out this big league staff. And, and I would suggest it's probably going to have to happen multiple times. Even if they go out and add a starting pitcher before spring training, you're just going to need a lot of bulk to get through a season. And I do think that Baraki has a chance to be part of that solution. So it's a little bit out there for a guy who spent most of the season a class A ball, but I think he's someone worth watching. And so I'll be keeping a close eye on Ryan Baraki to see if he does end up having the kind of impact that some people think he can I think you just made a lot of people at the Jays Journal very happy. We have a lot of minor league experts, and for you to bring up Baruki's name is just further affirmation of just how far this player has come. I mean, we heard a lot of great young players that might be able to make it one day, including Danny Jansen. And the best part is these are players that the Blue Jays really need to help define certain positions that most recently they've relied on either mercenary pickups or players that were embraced that started in other organizations. Whom should we maybe throw a little caution to the wind and be concerned about that might end up disappointing based on the expectations this year? Whenever we're looking at a question like that, I guess I would I would point to the people who are entering the season with the most expectations surrounding them. Because uh, mm. in, in a lot of ways, they have the biggest potential to disappoint. So Donaldson, if he were to miss time, that would be massively disappointing to this team, and that yeah. would be a massive blow. Um, Smoke would be another one, just based on what he did in 2017. I don't think anyone's counting on him for 38 home runs, but if he goes out there and, and posts an OPS plus of 100 and hits 21 home runs, I don't think that would be a very successful season based on the standard that he is now set for himself. So I, I think that, yeah, I, I just point that Strowman would be another one. I mean, the guys that they are relying on the most have the biggest potential to disappoint. Not that I think it's likely that any one of them will, but I think it's likely that one of them will. When you look at these guys that they're counting on, rarely do you see a team where the guys, you know, one through nine and one through five in the rotation um, all make it through a season healthy. So this team learned that the hard way last year. This year, at least on the position player side, they're a little bit better fortified, deal with those injuries when they do come up. But I I don't know about you, Ari, but I, I still see... On the pitching side, I see some vulnerability. If Asuna needs a week to rest his shoulder, you know, if, if Jay Happ ends up, ends up um, straining his knee, for, for example, twisting his ankle, these things happen in the course of a season. Yeah. What do you do if that comes up? Well, precisely, and I think a lot of that has been lost in the shuffle of the bigger, uh, sexier, uh, high-ticket priorities related to the outfield as well as the infield. 
I think that until the Blue Jays front office is completely finished with their plans of adjusting this roster, we kind of have to reserve judgment that way. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Ben, turning my attention to a couple of previous guests that I had, namely Garth Orge and Tony Fernandez from some very memorable 1980s teams. First of all, Tony Fernandez, I want to get your impressions. What, how do you perceive Tony Fernandez, a player that has returned to the organization on multiple occasions, is a World Series champion, and what I've, I, what I've personally always regarded as the best man to ever wear a Blue Jays uniform? What are your thoughts about Tony? Yeah, his prime as a, as a Blue Jays player, to a pretty big extent, preceded my time watching the Blue Jays. And as you mentioned, he came back in 93, and he came, came back again later. Um, when when he was past his prime. But in that stretch in the 80s, when he was the shortstop, and he was really anchoring the team on a couple of different fronts, offensively, defensively, that's the prime Tony Fernandez that, that we all think about. And so most of my experience with that version of Tony Fernandez is through watching the occasional game uh, that's clipped on, on YouTube, or <laughs> it's even through looking at his, his baseball reference, looking at his baseball cards. So I don't have the same vivid memories of him but I certainly, in an objective sense, you look at the numbers, you look at what he did, clearly the, the impact that he left on this franchise is substantial, and it's no coincidence that the Blue Jays rose to prominence and started actually winning for the first time with Tony Fernandez as their starting shortstop. Just an amazing story, and also one to make me appreciate how the game has changed, and both Tony and Garth talked about the designated hitter position, and I want to get your your two cents on that. How do you perceive what the modern day DH position is all about, knowing that last year in particular, if you looked at designated hitters across the American League in their splits and compared it to all other position players on average, it was lower, which really shocked me. I don't know about you, Ben. Why are teams having such a difficult time getting value out of a position that gives them the most flexibility as to whether or not they choose to platoon it, like in Garth Orge's day with Rance Mullenix, or whether they choose to have one dedicated DH like a Cliff Johnson who just does well against any pitcher thrown his way? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that when we think of the DH and we think about guys like David Ortiz, or of course in, in Blue Jays history, Paul Molitor, Dave Winfield, some of the some of the great DHs. Um, you think of that one guy who takes up 600 plate appearances, hits 30 bombs, and just intimidates the opposing pitcher um, and the opposing manager to an extent by virtue of being most often a slugger. So what we've seen is a departure from that, to be sure. And I think the teams are still using the DH. To their advantage, but I think that they try to extract a different type of value from it. I think they try to use it as a place to rest players who are maybe a little banged up, and they're willing to take a hit offensively for the flexibility that that having an open DH slot mm-hmm. allows them. And the Blue Jays, interestingly enough, now with Morales, have gone the other direction. I would say mistakenly, <laughs> I would say that that's a I would say that's a deal that doesn't look good at all right now because he's not a good enough hitter or wasn't last year to make up for the lack of flexibility that his presence on the roster created. But but isn't it interesting how fickle the game is, Ben? A year ago, you and I, I just 
distinctly recall having a conversation together where you and I were talking about how $11 million a year for a guy with the kind of traditional splits that Morales has is, in fact, a good value. Last year, they got negative value. He was absolutely horrible. Is there any reason for Blue Jays fans to think that Kendris Morales will somehow earn the $11 million in a complete inflexible reality that is having to only be a designated hitter on this baseball team? Well, I haven't seen all the projections that, that have come out, uh, and I'll be very interested to see how they project Morales. Uh, I'll be very interested interested to see what kind of shape he's in, what kind of adjustments he's made, if any, over the course of the offseason. Um, so at this point, is there any reason to think that he will be better? I, I don't see any concrete reason, any concrete or objective reason, uh, other than the bulk of his career, just pointing to the fact that historically – this is a guy who was hit and who was hit mm. better than he did in 2017. So that's the only real reason that I could point to. But there's always reason to hope. I mean, you can always you can yeah. always hope and, and you can always um, hold out for that for that possibility that he'll be better. And certainly, yeah, I mean, the, the best thing that I could point to if, if a Blue Chase fan is looking to, for some sign of optimism surrounding Kendrick Morales would just be to say that he's been better in the past than what he was in 2017. And you've obviously inspired what I'll, what I'll be naming this podcast episode, which is there's always reason for hope when you're a fringe wildcard <laughs> contender. I might have to, I might have to rethink go. that one, actually. I might have to rethink it. It doesn't sound like fans will be happy with that one. Ben, uh, I always appreciate you dropping by to chat with me. Why don't you tell my listeners what you're up to right now and where they can find you on social media and through all Rogers Sportsnet networks? Yeah, so, and first of all, it was, it was a pleasure to, to talk Blue Jays with you, as always. Um, mm. a lot of, a lot of, uh, in-depth conversation, which is nice sometimes, uh, to, to really get into a bit more depth, but as for, as for where you can find, uh, my stuff, it's, it's on Twitter at Smith. as you mentioned off the top too, there's a podcast, um, where, where honestly we have discussions like this. It's, it's very, very familiar to me, I guess, in a way, because, uh, it, it's, it's quite similar and it's called at the letter. So you can find that on iTunes. And, of course, the irony is that if I were to bring on Arden at the same time with you, it would basically be at the letters 2.0. I would just let the two of you guys exactly. go and do your thing, and I'd take notes in the background. Ben, always a pleasure to have you. Uh, you can find Ben Nicholson-Smith at Rogers Sportsnet. He is the national baseball editor. His podcast is at the letters. Pleasure chatting with you, as always. Anytime. Thanks. Let's turn our attention now to Richard Burfer and Dan Sagan from the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network who joined us yet again to take a closer look at catching prospect Danny Jansen, someone you need to be aware of, and here are the various reasons why. Gentlemen, take it away. Hi, Ari. Thanks for having us on again. Love talking baseball with you as always. Today we're going to be talking about Danny Jansen. He's a catcher in the Jays farm system. Uh, recently he was named a top 10 ranked catcher in all of baseball by MLB, MLB Pipeline. He's actually ranked number 8 um, recently. Uh, what do you think about him, Dan? Yeah, this is a guy who was on the prospect radar somewhat as as of a couple years, but it wasn't until this season that he really burst onto the scene mm-hmm. and he really started catching eyes. He hit 300-plus across three minor league levels, single-A, double-A, triple-A, and he's really you know starting to be known as yeah. one of the best catchers in all of baseball. Yeah, the, the thing with someone like Jansen is uh, he was drafted out of high school in the 16th round, I believe, back in 2013. And really, for guys like that, it takes a little bit of time to figure things out on on the pro level, and especially dealing with injuries. 
Um, it seems like in 2017 he really started putting things together, especially at the plate. Um, you look at his swing, it's nice, quiet, compact swing, uh, drives the bat through the, through the hitting zone, and even has some sneaky power to his pull side. Yeah, before this year, he'd never hit more than, I think, five home runs, mm -hmm. but he'd also never played more than 57 games, so tons mm -hmm. of injuries. And uh, But he is going into his sixth year in the Blue Jays system, so they did have to put him on the 40-man roster to mm -hmm. avoid the Rule 5 draft. But being on that 40-man roster shows that the Jays do recognize that he's a legit player mm -hmm. and he's going to be good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if he if he does well this spring training, he has a chance to make the Major League roster. It's mm -hmm. not likely. It'll probably be, be Luke Maley, but he does have a chance. Yeah. And um, if anything, it seems like the Jays have really found a guy who can potentially replace Russell Martin somewhere down the line. Um, other than the hit tool, which he clearly has, uh, something that gets undervalued is his game behind the plate. I mean, he he can block, he's flexible in, in the crouch, and he really looks like a guy who can be a good two-way player for the Jays um, maybe two, three years down the line. Yep, definitely a guy that uh, has a nice future, and mm -hmm. uh, I look forward to seeing what this guy can do. Awesome. Thank, thanks again for having us, Ari. Always love talking baseball with you. Thanks, Ari.